0: As we begin uh, the season of anticipation known as Advent, which uh, we're going to explain a little bit more once we get into the sermon, um, we're going we're to join Christians all over the world in lighting a candle each week, um, which sort of reminds us, it reminds us of the first coming of Jesus that John refers to as the light of the world. Um, he came 2,000 years ago. We look back on that. But, but we also look towards the second coming of Jesus that we still wait for. And so um, we are going to light the first candle in hope. And I thought I'd be really vintage and, and cool and use a match instead of a lighter. Could prove an incalculable error on my part. Let's see. And for the, next, um, for the next couple of weeks, as we're doing this, we're going we're gonna to try something together. Um, it might be a little unusual. We, we don't do a ton of things like this, but each time we'll have someone else the following three weeks light the candle, second, third, and fourth candle. And we're going to say this. Uh, I will say the first phrase, and then you as the congregation, you, you respond. Sound good? Jesus Christ is the light of the world. The light of the darkness, Amen. Well now, would you stand with me in reverence? In reverence, we, we, we do this, we stand, not just as a funny thing, not just to, to keep you guessing when's the right time to stand during the service, but when we read the scriptures each week, we, we stand to train our bodies to stand in reverence before the words that we believe. Most of us, I assume, in this room believe are the words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. So in that spirit, we stand from Psalm 130. my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, the Psalms were Israel's Ancient Israel's book of collected prayers, collected poems, collected songs, and the the overlap between those three categories, prayers, songs, and uh, poems, is very nebulous. Uh, And they were used for both individual and corporate worship as as communities. And it has held that place, in fact, not just for ancient Israel, but for Israel today, uh, and for Christians since the the Christian church's inception. this, This book has served this function for us as well. Um, the Psalms are an inspired, trustworthy guide for our prayers. And we, we spent, uh, was that last summer, two summers ago? Spent a summer working through the Psalms with this in mind, that, that, that these books, these poems, these songs, these prayers serve to teach us how to bring our whole selves to God. Psalms are, the Psalms can be scandalous because there are things in them that are violent. There are things in, with the Psalmist crying out for things that were like, ooh, that's not okay. And what we discover time and time again is that it, that's quite by design. It's, it's showing you it is okay to bring your full raw self to God. Whether it's the heights of celebration and joy and cheering what, what, what he's done for you, or whether it's the depths, whether it's anguish, whether it's agony, whether it's rage, whether it's a violent heart inside of you. The Psalms tell you, share that with God in all its ugliness. And in fact, that that, that process of bringing those things to him can be one of the mechanisms by which we avoid actually picking up a sword and going after our neighbor when we just express it to God and say, God, this is how I feel, but I leave it at your hands. I give it to you. So Psalm 130 is one of those, the 130th Psalm. And the writer of Psalm 130 begins unflinchingly. Verse 1, verse 2, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. That image of the depths. I mean, we, we read that and we're like, oh, yeah, yeah depths. Yeah, some, something sad is going on here. He's crying. He's pleading for mercy. He's asking for God's attention. But this image of the depths occurs a lot of times across the Hebrew Bible. It's, it's packed full of, full of meaning. Um, It it describes, as one commentator put it, quote, water's overwhelming power to drown someone. It's an image of being deep underwater without hope of surfacing again to oxygen and therefore to life. It's that feeling when you're you're, you're so far down, you kind of can't even imagine the light up there. It's so dark and it's so dim. It's like a James Cameron movie down there, you know? (laughs) To speak of being in the depths is to speak of deep, hopeless trouble, without any glimmer of optimism about saving yourself, about bootstrapping it back up to the surface. A Nicaraguan priest once paragraphed the opening, or once paraphrased the opening of this psalm this way. He said, "From the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, I cry in the night from the prison cell and from the concentration camp and from the torture chamber, in the hour of darkness, hear my voice, my SOS." The Bible, people would take issue with this, of course, but I I would say the Bible, certainly in this regard, is very, very realistic. I think you'd be hard-pressed to argue against that. Some of this mistaken view that the Bible's sort of pie-in-the-sky optimism and, oh yeah, it's just everything's gonna be great and easy and fine and there's no trouble if you just trust Jesus, everything's great, health and wealth and prosperity and all that stuff, and certainly those things are taught by some. But if you get a full, clear look at the Bible, you see that it, it's realistic. That these cries of this psalmist are of a piece with the whole of the scriptures that look at human evil and injustice and brokenness and sin and, and mistreatment of one another and vulnerability. They look them in the eye and they lament them. They cry out against them. They plead with them to be dealt with, plead for them to be dealt with. The, the Bible says that the depths are real. And, and just believing in Jesus or whatever else doesn't make them not real. We don't, have a, we don't have an eject button from the depths. They're there. And while everyone experiences them in different ways and to different degrees, of course, no two people's sufferings are ever identical. Nonetheless, no one avoids the depths for too long. In our congregation, look out. I know most of you in this room to some measure or another. I know that some of us are in deep depths right now. That may take the form of financial hardship or just anxiety and depression, whether you know the source of that or not. Isolation and loneliness, marital strife, agonizing battles with sin, addiction, serious illness, Lingering effects of serious illness, and on and on and on and on. To live in this fallen world is to, at some point or another, to swim in the depths. And if you're in the depths, you have two options. You can either just let it take you down, just sink down to the bottom, or you can cry out for help. You can plead for mercy. Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) I thought this was a Christmas service, Cameron. I see the Christmas li- beautiful by the way, the lights and the garlands, thank you. Let's see if anybody's here. Jack and Hannah helped with that, they're back there. And is Sarah Sloan here right now? Oh yeah, there's Sarah, give her a round kind of applause. Sarah was here, and, uh, Charlie and Charlie and Serena, was that the crew that was here this week? And they're not here, so shame on them for missing church this week. Um, Thank you all, seriously. looks beautiful. I think they're going to do a Christmas tree a little later on. That'll be fun. Um, But yeah, you may uh, may have wandered in. Oh, we're going to start Advent, Christmas, and it's fun and joyful and all that kind of stuff. And yes, it is joyful. It is joyful. It's meant to be joyful. I hope by the end of the sermon, you have some joy more than you have at this particular moment. But I, I bring all this up and I, we, we choose Psalm 130 to begin this series because Advent speaks directly into this situation, into this longing that comes when you find yourself in the depths. Advent simply means coming or arrival from the Latin. The first evidence that we have of, of, of sort of taking, it didn't, it wasn't called Advent yet, but of taking sort of a season to anticipate Christmas comes from 490 AD, so it's a very old tradition. And that, that happened to what we now know as modern France. And over the, over the centuries now, different practices have sort of sprung up around it. And if you, if you look at different church traditions, you'll see different ways Advent is um, celebrated. Uh, the Western church starts, Advent starts four Sundays before Christmas. I believe the Eastern church starts even a little bit earlier than that. So it, th- there's different traditions. So sometimes we can talk about Advent as if it's this one size fits all, everybody does it the same way, and that's not true. But the heart of Advent, Is making space for the longing and the waiting upon upon God to put all of this mess right. It involves looking back at the first advent, the first coming, the first arrival of Jesus, which is what we all think of, the baby Jesus swaddled in the manger, the animals, all this stuff. We look back to that, the the God of the universe coming into human flesh when the Son of God God incarnated himself and began the most pivotal chapter of his great mission to rescue humanity. We look there, but then it also, the part we often forget is that it also uh, means to look forward to his second coming. And if if you don't keep both of those in mind, you you kind of miss what it means to exist in this weird middle where, yes, Jesus has come! The light of the world was born into this world, and he... Then, of course, he taught and he performed miracles and he healed, showed radical compassion, he showed this incredible new way to live and he died for our sin in our place on the cross to redeem us. When we could not save ourselves, he did it for us and he offers that as a free gift to any who would receive it in faith, just throwing ourselves in trust at his feet. Then, he appeared to his disciples, many disciples, for a period of about 40 days and then he ascended to heaven He sent his Holy Spirit to empower his people. And he said, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And we live in this time where we have the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We are carrying his mission forward here. Though he is not here with us. His spirit is. But he is at the right hand of the Father. And we long for that second advent where all the things that still nip at us, that still trouble us, that still wreak incredible, not just nip at us, but wreak incredible destruction and evil and horrific things in this world every day. We wait for that day when he comes back and he says, I'm putting it all right. Every bit of sin, every bit of evil, every bit of injustice, every bit of pain will be wiped away. The world in its unfallen state will be restored, renewed, recreated in the new beginning to humanity and the new heavens and the new earth will be launched. And, and that, that, that's something to, to, to eagerly wait for, friends. Advent is about that too. First coming of Jesus and the second coming and acknowledging life in this weird middle right here where we, we, we know the first has happened and we're just waiting for that second to happen. That's Advent. So it is meant to be a season of joy, but not a joy that papers over or ignores hardship and trouble because that wouldn't be honest. I wouldn't be honest. So this year for Advent, and you know, we, we, this is I guess our third Advent as a, as a community. The first one was done over like Zoom basically uh, during the high COVID era. Uh, but last year we looked at sort of the Christmas story and the Old Testament and then three of the gospels. This year we're gonna look at the traditional sort of words and themes uh, that many church communities look at, um, which are hope, peace, joy, and love. And I know, just saying those four words, hope, peace, joy, love, oh, that's, that's nice, that's pleasant, that's sweet. And it, it's sort of like, we're all so inoculated against re- recognizing these things as these crucial, elemental, like guttural yearnings that we all have. If we're really honest, we all really want to hope, hope against hope against hope that we can actually hope in something real that's not just a pipe dream. That's not just, you know, the opiate of the people or whatever that there's real hope in this world that we can actually cling to, that can actually empower and sustain us right now. We actually all really deep down long for peace between God and us first and foremost, of course, between the Creator and His creation, but also between brothers and sisters, between fellow humanity and with our world, our planet, Eve. like every single thing that's just so much discord, we long for peace, long for peace to come. We also long for joy, a real, actual, lasting joy that can't be snatched, even through difficult circumstances that can prevail. And of course, we all long for love, to be known and loved unconditionally, to be accepted, of course, first by the God of the universe who created us and and by our fellow humanity as well. So yes, nice, buzzy words. You'll find it like on a tacky, hobby-lobby piece of like... Pli- pli- like fake distressed wood, you know, on like a wall or something. And if you have that in your house, no shame, no shame. If that's meaningful for you, seriously, no shame. But I do fear that these deep, deep themes that are speaking to like some of the deepest longings of the human heart that we just go, oh, that is, that's nice, oh yes, yes, that's nice. No, it's more than nice, it's essential. It's essential to not losing your mind in this world that we live in between these two advents. So, so, with everything Christmas-related, there is a real danger that it will all get sentimentalized and commercialized and turned into cliché, um, and to let Advent really do its work, we have to first be honest about the difficulty and tragedy of life, of our own sin, of our inability to, to accomplish these things on our own, and from that place of honesty, then we can receive the hope and peace and joy and love that Jesus offers for the glorious things that they actually are, amen? Okay, well, Psalm 130 captures this dynamic as well as about anything in the scriptures, I would say. So that's where we're going to continue to look, but first let's pray. Father, we need you this morning. We need you to speak through your word. We need you to help us to understand. We need you to help us to give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see. Um, Lord, we don't want to just march through another Advent season or Christmas season or holiday season, Lord, um, on the surface. But we want to open ourselves up to you to let you take us deep down into the depths that all of these ancient ideas and traditions and ways of sort of kicking off a new year have served your people for centuries now. So, so this morning, Lord, may we start on that foot. Lord, speak to us afresh. Please help us fight against cliche and against old hat and rote habit. But may this be, a yes, a habit that's just jammed full of meaning and significance and depth that maybe we've, maybe we've never even realized before. I pray that for myself. And I pray that for all of my friends here in this room. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So. The first thing we learn from this psalm, I've already mentioned, is that the depths are real. The depths are real. The depths will come. We will experience them. And we need deliverance from them. And for some of you right now, there is nothing shocking or surprising about that because you're in the middle of it right now. Just here, the psalmist, the Holy Spirit, speaking through the psalmist says, yes, it is true. Life is hard. Life is impossible. Life is so impossible. Impossible. Advent doesn't fully make sense until we see the desperation of humanity, our world, our city, and ourselves. And we come to terms with the fact that we are not going to fix this mess ourselves. There is no utopian plan that's going to solve and settle all of this. We need help from the outside. The second thing we learn from this psalm is that there is a God we can turn to from the depths. There is someone we can actually turn to. If we read on, we'll we'll reread verse two. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Please, God, hear me. I know you're there and I need you to listen. Don't leave me. Listen, 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 God. And if you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, my sins, he doesn't say mine, just them in general, If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could possibly stand? We're all guilty. No one can stand righteously before you. But that said, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, that you may be awed over. You may be revered. There is forgiveness. The psalmist doesn't just cry out from the depths into a void, just that guttural cry like, if, if anyone's out there or just I'm just crying for crying's sake, it's my body's reaction to a stressful and a near-death experience or whatever. He cries out to a person, He cries out to the God that he trusts despite all appearances at the moment that this God is good. He's trusting the goodness of God despite the gravity and darkness of his situation. That this God is not just good, but powerful. That, that, That he's not just good, but he actually has the power to intervene. And that actually he's attentive. That he actually is going to care about my situation and my experiencing of the depths here. That's all loaded behind this. The psalmist declares that God is worthy of these cries worthy of these cries that they won't fall on deaf ears. So he cries out to God for attention, for mercy, for forgiveness. He's aware that his sinfulness would typically keep him from presuming or asking of anything from God. He has no intrinsic right to ask God of anything, but for the fact, but for the fact that God delights to forgive. He continually comes back again and again and again to offer mercy and grace and forgiveness and love to those who have rejected him, who have turned from him, who have harmed one another, and on and on and on and on. So he reminds himself of of the character of this God. Here we see both a posture of humility and of deep reflectiveness in this psalmist. In short, we see that if the depths are real, I think experience tells us they are, we can and must turn to God if there is to be any deliverance, any relief, any peace. And God is merciful and forgiving and willing to respond and to pull us from them. That's the next thing we learn from the Psalm. Another thing we learn, it's not just that we can turn to this God, we must turn to this God, but that we must wait on Him in hope. Verse five says, I will wait for the Lord my soul waits in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Verse seven, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for the Lord, with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. So here's a call to wait, to cry out and then to wait. And there are two main Hebrew verbs that we translate wait. They both appear in this Psalm and they they, they almost always both carry this idea of expectantly waiting on God because of a basic trust in his character and promises. It's not like a hope, it's not a hopeful waiting that's sort of like, well, things are just gonna get better. It's just the way of the world to get better. You know, if you're sinking like a stone down into the ocean, things aren't just going to automatically get better. There's no law or principle in nature that says, Everything that sinks down to the ocean must get shot back up just in the nick of time. It it doesn't exist. He's not appealing to just circumstances will just naturally improve. No, his hope, his hope and his ability to wait rests on the character of this God that he's come to know and love and trust. There is a close relationship actually between waiting and hoping in the Hebrew Bible. Some even go so far as to say that there's no real distinction to wait is to wait in hope. To hope involves a waiting component. Biblical hope is not focused on the circumstances themselves. It's not focused on some kind of law of natural improvement, but just on the character of God, that God has been faithful in the past... We read the stories, we, read, we immerse ourselves in the scriptures, but the Old and New Testament we see that God has been good, he's been faithful, he's been at work, he has kept his promises to his people. In the past, therefore, we can trust that he will again in the future. And, it, and this hoping, this, this hopeful waiting involves a choice to wait for God to bring about the future that is as surprising as a crucified man rising from The dead it looks back to the risen Jesus even to look forward to what's ahead for us so waiting and hope involves patience you can't wait without patience it involves confidence you can't really wait without confidence if you have no confidence in God it's gonna be hard to wait it's gonna be hard to trust waiting and hope involves a recognition of your own need you're not, you don't wait unless you actually know you have to wait on him for something. And it involves a recognition of your own inability. If you, if you uh, don't recognize you're unable to change your circumstances at the most fundamental level, you're not going to wait. You're going to get to work. You're going to start making a plan. You're going to start putting uh, y- your action into it. But waiting involves rec- recognition of, of all of these things. And the call to wait, I want to be very clear, does not preclude all action. The remaining weeks, we're going to look at the things that involve more activity on our part in response to this, this God. But nonetheless, the call to wait does not foreground action. It sets our fundamental dispositions as ones who trust in the work of God, not in our own work. And I think what sums this up is this image the psalmist uses of this watchman. The watchman. And this could refer to soldiers... Uh, waiting for you know, their, night, their night shift of watching over the camp to end. It could mean the temple priests uh, or someone working in the temple waiting for the sun to come up so that they can begin their sacrifices. It doesn't really matter. The core feeling that this is meant to evoke would be the same on either, on either metaphor. It's that feeling of hanging on for dear life until the Calvary comes. I can think of no better image now, I've, we, I've, probably most of you, this is what you think of, the Helm's Deep battle in uh, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, that long, super long battle sequence in the middle of that second movie where they're, they're using that sort of ancient hole to sort of shore up their defenses as best as they possibly can against impossible odds, and the, and the walls starting to crumble and they're just holding out hope as best they can until finally, what happens? The light dawns, Gandalf's there on the hill and he's transformed into a greater power than they could have ever imagined, and he comes and he totally changes the shape of the battle. It's that idea of just holding the line, like there's nothing we can do, there's nothing we can do, there's nothing we can do. If we could just see the glimmer of hope coming, then everything would change. If darkness often symbolizes danger and the need to protect yourself, then the dawning of the light means that you can finally stop your vigilance and you can find peace and you can rest. That's the the longing of the night watchman, just waiting for the peace of morning to come when the job is finished and you can rest with peace and joy. The watchman cannot force the sun to rise. There's nothing in his power that can just make night turn into day, but he can wait and he can watch and he can trust that the sun will rise again because it rose, it rose yesterday. and No matter how long this particular night feels, I can trust it will rise again. This is our position. This is where you sit in this world right now. You are waiting and watching for the God who promises to put it all right. There's, there's another thing. There's another thing that this Psalm teaches. It's that hope has been and will be rewarded. It, it, it ends on this note, verse eight. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Tied up into that phrase is hope for the Messiah. It's hope for um, God to be faithful to his covenant. It's hope, it's, it's hope that God will restore Israel's fortunes. Uh, all of these things that get wrapped up, of course, in the person of Jesus. But the psalmist didn't know that at that time. Nonetheless, he ends up recommitting himself in hope with this declaration, God will redeem Israel. He will redeem us from all of our sin and everything that that comes with that sin, all of our misfortune. We are in a far better position than this psalmist, this side of the cross. We are emboldened by the first advent, friends. The eternal God really did come into the human brotherhood and sisterhood. He did do everything necessary to redeem Israel from all iniquities, and not just Israel, but the whole world, the whole world. Jesus really did die on the cross. He really did rise from the grave, and he really did ascend to heaven and send to spirit to empower his people, and he changed the course of human history. I really believe everything is different because of what happened. In Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and so what we must do is is take this declaration in verse 8 and and live into it in its fullness that that as we march towards Christmas we let the fact that God did send his son into this world to embolden us in our moments of pain and fear and desperation we don't just look back to um, we don't look back to anything except the fact that God sent his son to die in our place. God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that none should perish, but, but that all should believe in him. Find forgiveness for our sins. Find a place in his family. Find an eternal hope that can never be taken from us. Find a seat at his table. Find real power to, 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 to change and to actually begin to be his hands and feet in this world as we await him putting it all things right. So we can have an even greater boldness this side of the cross as we look back and say, wow, he has done it. He has changed everything. But, but, again, we may be emboldened by the first advent, but we are still weary (laughs) waiting for the second one. And that's okay. We don't have to pretend that things have already been restored because they haven't. Jesus himself said to his disciples, in the world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. Things will be hard, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So we still have to cry out and grieve and lament and struggle and wait and hope. To do anything else is to not be honest. It's to put on a charade or it's to actually begin to believe it and think that we are somehow insulated and going to be able to avoid it our day of deep suffering, which will come for all of us at some point or another. But no, no, we don't pretend, we don't hide. We do all these things. We lament and we struggle and we wait and hope. But. do it in light of the fact that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth we grieve but not as those who have no hope so door of hope northeast door of hope northeast may this week we begin to learn a little bit more what it means to wait in hope. Not papering over our hardship, but looking the hardships fully in the eye and saying, nonetheless, God can be trusted. He can be trusted. And frankly, there's no one else to trust. There is nowhere else to turn. Lord, to whom else would we go? In the words of Peter. That's Advent. We wait in hope. Amen? All right, let's pray.